everyone. Welcome to Real Women Real Estate episode 59. Woo woo. Woo woo. So many. We count. Is it really 59, guys? So weird. Oh, man. Yeah. I'll take it. I know. Mm-hmm. It's been great. Um, hopefully, everyone's having a great week. We have an amazing guest I'm super excited to talk to today, Miss Aisha J. Thomas. We're going to introduce Miss Aisha here in a little bit, but you know, we got a quote for you. Today's quote is, your talent determines what you can do. Your motivation determines how much you're willing to do. Your attitude determines how well you do it. And that is by Lou Holtz. And I would say that quote is definitely inspired by today's guest. Uh, Just after reading her bio, I think we all kind of were like, dang, we need to do better with our lives. Like, (laughs) motivation. (laughs) But let's tell you a little bit about Ms. Aisha J. Thomas. Aisha J. Thomas began her real estate career in 2001. She specializes in buyer agency and investment sales and has a commercial real estate practice with her firm, the Thomas Agency. She is licensed to practice law in the state of Georgia and owns AJT Law, a boutique real estate firm. I'm sorry, a boutique real estate law firm. In 2020, she was named as a Connect Media RE Top 50 Lawyers in Real Estate Awardee. The Thomas Agency is a licensed real estate broker in Michigan and Georgia. And Aisha is also a licensed real estate agent in California. She's a member of various professional, educational, and civic organizations and has been featured and quoted in Yahoo Finance, Black Enterprise Magazine Special, uh, for time home buyers edition, Voyage ATL magazine, and many national real estate blogs, local radio, as well as HGTV's hit show, My First Place. I love that show. In addition to selling real estate, Aisha advocates for affordable and fair housing by volunteering with the Atlanta Legal Aid Society in Housing, Georgia. In addition to her love of real estate and law, she enjoys live music, traveling, and expanding her culinary palate and spending time with her sons. Whew, that was a mouthful. Thank you so much, Aisha, for joining Real Women Real Estate. Hi, ladies. Thank you for having me. Um, I was uh, honored that I was invited. So I'm happy to be here. And uh, thank you. I know that was a mouthful. So. <laughs> and, and you all cut it down really well. I was like, I got to use this clip. Mm, just cut and paste that on something else. So. <laughs> That's all you. That is all you. So you have a very lengthy and established uh, real estate career, but can you tell us how your real estate career began in 2001? Interesting enough, I didn't go to school for real estate. Um, In 2001 is when I graduated from undergrad and I read a lot of autobiographies and biographies about wealth or people who were quote unquote wealthy. And the common denominator I always found was that they were in real estate. And so, you know, I'm from Detroit, my family, you know, my grandmother had a couple rental properties down the street from the house she owned. And, you know, my cousins had a multi-family where they rented to someone, but that was about the extent of my personal experience of, you know, real estate investing or anything like that. So, you know, I was like, oh, I guess I'm supposed to get a license if I want to learn more, even though we know that's not the case anymore. (laughs) But back then, a friend of mine whose family, her grandmother was a trailblazer in the industry, was one of the first Black women to own a real estate franchise in Detroit. So she grew up in real estate. They had apartment buildings, all kind of stuff. So we both were, uh, she had came back to Michigan from school and we both decided, okay, well, let's get our real estate license. So we just took the cram class and that's how it started. We placed our license under her aunt and her mother also was kind of a mentor and they had a small um, 
REO brokerage. So they only did REOs before that was the thing to do. Um, so, you know, they were strategically placed when the market shifts. So, um, so that, that was my foray into real estate. I always kind of kept it as a little side hustle while I worked for the city of Detroit and some other, my other first jobs out of college. Um, so I did just keep real estate as a side thing and didn't ever ne necessarily go into it full time until many years later, but it was always something I kind of just dabbled in initially. Why California? Your license in California. Where did that come in at? Oh, that's way down the <laughs> down the line in the journey. But the short version is several years later, almost 12 years later, when I graduated from law school, uh, when I graduated, I got into the USC uh, Ross development program out there, real estate development program. Got in that program. They were supposed to provide housing for you for the consecutive weeks of the program. Got out there. They just flipped the script, said, oh, it's only going to be Thursday, Friday, Saturday, Sunday program for so many weeks and so that's what really made me even go out to cali because i you know always lived in michigan i went to undergrad grad school and law school in detroit so going to california was almost like my getaway um going away from school going away from home experience um actually living somewhere else for the first time and so of course while i was there i gotta get my license so i can still do some deals and ultimately do that program ended up not doing that program but did find project reef out there and did uh, complete the Project REAP um, Real Estate Associate Program, which is a national program. And I'm part of that committee here in Atlanta now. Uh, so great connection, because it exposed me to commercial real estate like nothing I had never heard of. I, you know, it's more than buildings. It's so many aspects beyond brokerage and the commercial real estate side. So, so that's how I got my license in Cali. Moved out there, um, only stayed out there for a, a little over a year. and came back to came to Atlanta because I didn't want to go back to the snow. <laughs> so that's that's the main reason. But it snows in Atlanta. It don't snow like it does in Michigan. I mean I know not like Detroit, you know, but you don't get 12 inches up to your kneecaps and you know here everybody kind of stays in the house. So when it's snowing a little, I'm not scared to drive in it, you know, but they just don't know how to prepare the streets and everything. But it's nothing like negative eight degrees, negative seven degrees. So I can deal with the little changes here versus at home. So I definitely miss Cali though. The water, one of the most scenic places in the country to live. So um, definitely miss living there and being near all the different beaches and everything else. So yeah, Atlanta sounds like Dallas with the snow, except for this past February. We we had a little bit of extra, but I'm right there with you. I don't I don't want any kind of kneecap snow. That's, that's right, right. right. And my mom lives in Dallas and she FaceTime me showing me the hail coming down a couple weeks ago. I'm like, what is that? She's like, uh, you know, tear your car up out here, but hey, I can take that over some snow any day. So I get it. Yeah, exactly. That's, yeah. Mm -mm. No, no ma'am. <laughs> <laughs> no ma'am. So I, I want to jump into the next, uh, just kind of next topic, which is your your law career. How does uh, your real estate intertwine with law career? Because that's that's a whole move in itself. I mean, that's that's enough. Like, how does that intertwine, right, with uh, real estate? It's more than enough, actually. When I went to law school, I really never had. I wanted to get the law degree to kind of leverage it into real estate. I never wanted to be a traditional lawyer in that sense. Um, Cause I graduated from law school over seven years ago now, it's almost eight years now, but, and I only just, just opened my practice last year. 
Um, so, you know, took the bar a couple times, didn't pass. I was like, oh, maybe that's God trying to tell me, just focus on what I'm doing. <laughs> but um, actually ended up passing. Third time was a charm, you know, um, after the tries and, you know, not ashamed of that because it just kind of persevered in between life and everything. So passed and how I kind of entertain, inter- intertwine them is that I feel like I have a different perspective as an attorney only because I tell people I've sat in every seat whether it's as a real estate agent, as a first-time buyer, as a renter, as a landlord, as somebody who was about to lose their home. I faced foreclosure during the market crash of 2008, 2009, right before I went to law school. Um, Then, of course, on the flip side, seeing how things are now. So I have a very different perspective, I think, from most lawyers who kind of when I meet a lot of lawyers who are in commercial real estate, they all say, I kind of fell into it. And I'm like, hmm, this is a real concerted effort for me, you know, <laughs> considering that less than 1% of men and women in commercial real estate are of color. And then also less than 5% of law- lawyers are even black. So, um, you know, it's, it's, it's very uh, trying road to really build a business on the commercial side. So how I intertwine them. Of course, some people think they're getting a two for one, but I kind of try to, uh, you know, draw a clear delineation between, okay, you're getting real estate services today. Now, once we finish this, we can engage as a- You can get this hourly fee. (laughs) (laughs) Right, right. We can engage, but you know, of course I can't help it. I'm going to have a a lens on a, a, a deal or a contract that's a little different and kind of prevent some things that maybe if I was an attorney, I wouldn't have been as aware of or sensitive to. So um, I think it's a great fit, you know, always down to have multiple streams of income. You know, I've had other lawyers say, well, you need to focus on one. And I'm like, "Mm." you know, it's like, I can still run a brokerage and not do the day-to-day showing the houses, but also still have the opportunity to broker deals at a higher level. Um, And then also bringing a legal background to it. So, I tell people, I sit at every table, I'm a deal creator, help you solve the solutions. I'm not trying to look at a contract and tear it apart and say, oh, you shouldn't do this deal. I'm going to try to find a way um, because I've been the agent who needs that commission or I've been the investor who was excited about something. And then you have some attorney coming by telling you you shouldn't do it, but doesn't tell you how to solve those problems. So that's how I differentiate myself in the market here. I love that. And I also love what you said about you're there to help the deal. Um, a lot of people are afraid of attorneys like, oh, oh, this got to go to legal. There, there it goes. It's going to take, you know, an additional two, three weeks. But that's a great point that you're actually there to help facilitate the deal because and you have that unique perspective because you've been on all sides. Is that only on commercial or do you help real estate investors just like with res- regular residential investing as well? Yes. As far as on the brokerage side, my my 80% of my clientele would, uh, would say are real estate investors who invest in single family or single family portfolios or have multiple properties. And some are just now breaking into the multifamily side. So I would say 80% of my clientele are investors. And as far as on the legal side, yeah, I've, absolutely. I've helped people who want to create partnerships. Now I don't do, you know, the big thing now is syndication or crowdfunding. Um, I try to stay in my lane and refer them to someone who has, you know, more experience in the compliance side, because you got to be careful when you start trying to, you know, uh, raise money and take other people's money and making promises on return. So I kind of stay away from that. But I definitely help with entity selection, contract review, lease review, 
Um, doing some landlord tenant stuff, but that's not my zhuzh. We gonna stay away from that. Um, I do a lot of land use too, where I've helped investors who bought properties who have, you know, these grand visions and plans and then find out later, uh, I can't build, a, you know, this type of property there. I need a variance or special land use permit or something like that. So um, kind of fall into a lot of that kind of work lately, which I like. So um, it's all good because I get to use, you know, every perspective every day. That's interesting. You said 80% of your clientele are investors. Mm-hmm. So I bet you like our, our audience is investors. I, I dare to say 80% are over. <laughs> right. And so uh, they, they may be looking out for you. But what are some common mistakes, right? Because that's, that's what everybody wants to do. You can't necessarily, you, or maybe it's not that you can't, but you want to do something together and you just need to have an attorney, draw it up. What are some of the common things that you see? What are some things that you could educate us on and partnering and combining your businesses in order to buy an investment property? Well, um, deal with this every day. Um, The first thing you already touched on, the first thing is actually drawing up an agreement. I mean, you'll be surprised how many people do not actually draw up the agreement or, you know, because they know, oh, I can get the LLC myself. So, but then as soon as they're an issue, their agreement is so vague or general. It doesn't really- I was yeah. going to say janky. Yeah. <laughs> you know, I'm trying to use the correct terms. Yeah. These janky contracts, they wrote up. And now when it's a problem, it doesn't really guide the group or the individual. Whole value. Right. Uh, right. Exactly. Now we got a battle for real where a lot of that could be prevented while everybody's still friends and everybody's still agreeing. So, so um, one of the things I tell people, if you're considering Uh, investing in, you know, a group or investing with a group or with other people, make sure you all have an understanding of the roles, what happens, especially if it's only two people, what happens when you don't disagree, when you don't agree? Um, There's not a third person or an odd number to solve the, you know, to to break the tie, let's say. So you got to be very specific about who's responsible for what, how much capital is going to be required, who what happens when we need more money? You know, cause some people get in these things and say, okay, well I gave my little $10,000. That's all I got, you know, but now we got a project just sitting here. So is somebody going to be the guarantor if we have to go get a loan, all of this stuff. I know, and it sounds so daunting, but I really tell people if you can kind of come up with every what if you can, you want to account for it now while everybody's clear, there's no money clouding the clouding visions and nobody's feeling cheated or like they are doing more work if you kind of say okay you're going to be responsible for this type of work and vice versa so um i think the biggest mistake people is not having understanding of their roles when they're partnering with others and not not necessarily having the resources to do what they think they want to do or accomplish so being very clear on what your um, real estate goals are you know, because one person got in the group thinking they're going to be a flipper. The other person wants to be a landlord, you know. <laughs> so now we got conflicting because as soon as the market go up, that that flipper like, hey, we can sell. You know, it's up 20 percent in this neighborhood. Let's sell. The other person like, no, but we can raise the rent, you know. So I think making sure you align your uh, real estate goals is for sure if you're going to be working with someone. But just even as you're an individual, I talk to people all the time. And I say, you know, I get the, I want to be an investor. What do I start? You know, first thing is, what are your return requirements? How much money do you have? Because, you know, coming from, I'm from Detroit. So 
um, you know, that market got hit pretty hard and you could buy property for like $5,000, $1,000, $2,000. And even still to this day, you can get some $5,000, $10,000, even $15,000 properties that had tenants in them at one point. But you get people who are new, who saved up 10, 15, buy a property, but now it's like deer in headlights because, okay, I still need money to fix it, even if it has a tenant. You still got to have some reserves because guess what? Tenant's going to call you now. <laughs> and if you don't, you can't say I need your rent so I can go pay to get the furnace repaired because I need your rent money. You know, so a lot of people don't think ahead. So I think preparation is key and not jumping on it just because it fits your initial budget. But you got to think about how it fits into your long term plan. And it's OK to pass up a deal, even if it looks like a great deal, if it does not fit in your parameters. Um, for yourself. So. Amen. Amen. The crazy is uh, the partnership that I have is me and my husband. So we have the same. <laughs> we might need you. No, I'm kidding. <laughs> because one wants to flip, one wants to rent. <laughs> right. right. So, you know, now y'all got to push, um, you know. <laughs> yeah, exactly. So besides agreements, what else is there that an everyday investor could use you for, utilize your services for? Well, my real estate company also offers some transaction coordination, especially more so specifically for wholesalers, because I deal with a lot of wholesalers. So something as simple as, you know, helping them write up the agreement, the assignment and getting it to the, you know, in Georgia, Georgia's the closing attorney state. So have to use an attorney. So uh, getting it to the closing, um, making sure, you know, everything is executed correctly, that the, our EMD is submitted, if any. Um, so I help a couple of, you know, and they just pay me a flat fee at closing or some that'll just pay me in advance to just do their contracts for them. Cause they don't want to, you know, they don't want to have to worry. They call me and say, Hey, these are the terms or you shoot me an email. I send it over e-sign or my assistant does the e-sign and then set it up. And really that's all we do. And I have to just tell people, Hey, we're not representing them as an agent or anything like that. We're just coordinating, making sure you are, your docs make sense and they're correct. And that's pretty much you it. So the EMD? I beg your pardon? But you hold the EMD for them? No, no, no. Oh. Not, not in Georgia. Uh, we, we, you know, make sure that it gets deposited to the respective company or, you know, at least that they have proof. And just, we can, I kind of conduct their um, transaction as if I was the realtor involved, but without being the realtor. So they don't do any negotiations or uh, presenting offers. I just write down whatever they said they agreed upon and get them to the closing table. And that's pretty much it. That's awesome. And you can still practice in Georgia as well as California, right? Right. Mm -hmm. As far as, as a as a broker, as a real estate salesperson or broker. And then, you know, of course, on the legal side, I, I can do closings. Um, I do a lot of commercial closings. That's my niche. I don't try to step on my residential people's toes. So a lot of them send their, their commercial um, deals to me because there are a little bit more nuances to commercial deals commercial. where you know, even though you would think it's just a matter of the same thing and it kind of is, but then it's, it's a lot more, you get asked a lot more questions when it comes to a commercial deal. Um, during a due diligence and title and a certain type of title you have to have for if it's a lender involved um, and things of that matter. So no, that definitely makes sense. So uh, when we were doing our research on your agencies, we did see that your company has a subsidiary called Accommodator LLC, which sounds so like efficient. Like you just get in there and get stuff done. I love it. Can you, can you tell us more about that? 
yeah, um, Accommodator LLC is actually just a qualified intermediary, also referred to as Accommodator. So it hits the name, you know, that was just a play on the name or a facilitator for which I just help facilitate um, IRS 1031 tax deferred exchange. So that's all. Um, it's just a, a, a pass through entity to hold the funds in, in a 1031 exchange. I haven't done many of them through this particular company, but I have done represented a lot of people who were doing 1031s. And a lot of people think, oh, that's for those multi-million dollar deals. And really you can do that, do this on almost any size. The average, the average deal is probably under 500,000 for most 1031 exchanges. So really the qualified intermediator is just an in, uninterested person who has agreement with whoever the taxpayer is and basically just make sure that they go find a replacement property. They hold the money, make sure they don't get any profits for it, just to kind of protect it. Then a curious thing, when I did my research about accommodators, they're not regulated at all. So anybody can become accommodated. You don't have to be an attorney to be one. You don't have to have a real estate background or anything. You can kind of just hang your shingle out. And I was shocked by that. So, but I was like, hey, okay, let's bury a ventry. Let's try this, you know? <laughs> so, right. so it doesn't hurt to... um market that and have that as another service to clients. So what's the risk involved that I'm sure like there's some high risk there as an accommodator, like you have to have like certain insurance to protect yourself while you're holding those funds? The money has to be held in escrow. You, you don't, it's not regulated. So, I mean, you, I, I obviously have insurance because I'm an attorney, but, and also even as a real estate agent, I have errors in admission and things of that nature but really is about just having an escrow account, holding it and making sure that all the documents that are required from the IRS are completely are completed correctly. And then you release the money to whoever the attorney is or either the other, the, the actual seller of the property that they're exchanging for. Hmm. I love that. So our listeners, if, if you're paying attention, I should just put you on <laughs> to another way to make money in real estate. Once you sell your property and don't want to pay capital gains, you can exchange it, as they call it. You know, yeah. and everybody think, like I said, everybody thinks it's a rich person's game, but really most of the deals are smaller that are, you know, uh, done with 1031s. I think it's just that we're not educated as much. Right, exactly. If it was something that we were agreed more familiar with. Right. I mean, I just was two years ago found out that you didn't even, it wasn't regulated and that really anybody can hold themselves out and be a, you know, accommodator or facilitator of these type of deals. You know, of course, charge, you know, some of the fees are charged based on a percentage or some charge a flat fee. So it really just depends on, um, I guess, the intricacy of the deal that you're doing and all that. So. Yeah, I didn't know that either. Yeah. The wheels are spinning. <laughs> so, hey, you know, another string. <laughs> Doesn't hurt to try it, you know. Exactly. Especially something that's unregulated, right? Long as you know the tax rules when it comes to 1031s, that's the only thing. It's not like it's any kind of license or anything involved with doing it. So, that's awesome. Kim, what you got up next? This is Kim's favorite question. She didn't. She didn't. She didn't catch the. I was like, she didn't throw. That was a terrible pass, Courtney. <laughs> terrible quarterback pass. This is this is the playoffs. This is the NBA playoffs. I need you to do better. Yeah, I was like, what do you mean? This was this was behind the back. 
I'm trying to stay muted. My husband's in the kitchen, so it's a lot of background, right? <laughs> do you personally invest in, you know, what's your portfolio looking like? Yeah, I actually do. I kick myself every day for selling my stuff in Detroit. <laughs> but, you know, hindsight is 2020. Um, I had about four properties before I, um, when I started law school and, you know, liquidated everything um, by the time I graduated to, to help pay for stuff and to, because I was moving and didn't want to really, I didn't enjoy being a landlord as much, um, did pay some property management companies, but um, because back then the portfolio was a little smaller, so um, it didn't make sense. Um, more recently, I've been doing a lot more crowdfunding type investing where I'm, it's a little bit more passive for me. Recently with a group invested in a commercial strip mall, um, another opportunity that I'm currently reviewing is a ghost kitchen. Um, so I'm trying to get more into the commercial side of the investment, less into the residential, unless it's some type of multi-unit multi for me personally. So my goal is ultimately to either wholly own a strip mall or some kind of office um, because, you know, most of the, on the commercial side, you pass most of the cost on to the tenants. So it's not the same where they can call you about the toilet and everything. And usually the tenants paying everything in there under the sun, taxes, insurance, all that, just depending on, you know, type of lease structures you have. So yeah, so right now I'm doing a little bit more passive and in investing, of course, also in some REITs, you know, by buying stock. And I've been a lot more passive lately. What's with the crowdfunding, what's been your, um, your experience with that as far as like the dividends payouts and everything? Well, right now with one of them I've done, we only got about $17 check, <laughs> but I didn't, I didn't invite, I didn't invest a lot. So, you know, so it's like, okay, I'm not going to lose sleep about, you know, this is a long-term hold. Um, another one that's more recent, uh, depending on the strategy of how many tenants it gets leased up with the retail one, um, that's going to determine as a group, you know, the manager, because you kind of, it's passive. So, you know, we can make suggestions and just kind of listen to what's going on, but really it's still waiting. You know, it's a, it's a, those are definitely more of a long-term thing. You can't put your money in think you're going to get it back in a year plus with your 10%, unless it's something that they promised. Cause like I said, with the ghost kitchen one, they're promising a 10% return, but also the entry is 50,000. So, so that's the difference. Right. Yeah. Um, what is what is that? I'm not familiar with that. What is ghost kitchen? Ghost kitchens are, you know, how <clears throat> now instead of restaurants with Uber, you know, with Uber Eats and all the door dashes and all that, or even just smaller uh, restaurant tours or people who want to own their restaurant one day, their caterers, places where caterers can come in and use a kitchen and have a headquarter, quote unquote headquarters to do all their um, food prep for their food trucks. Cause they don't want to do everything inside the truck. They got a place to store their stuff. So the ghost kitchen tends to rent to those type of businesses, caterers, and also um, in at least here in Atlanta, a lot of these, um, like even like if you DoorDash from Popeye's, right? It's not actually coming from the Popeye's. The guy isn't going standing in line at Popeye's, the actual franchise restaurant, they're going to door a ghost kitchen that obviously has, I guess, some kind of agreement where they're in there. I guess they got the secret recipe and they frying the Popeye's there and not at you thinking they're coming from the restaurant. Seriously? Yeah. Oh, that's new because here they're coming from the restaurant. Yeah, no, they're doing that, it here. Everybody? 
they're they're doing it here too. I I heard about that on NPR, and it oh. came about like right before the pandemic. So the people who bought into that concept before the pandemic, a lot of those restaurants are doing well. There's yeah. like some brands like Mr. Beast Burger. Like a lot of YouTubers are are creating food brands and using Ghost Kitchen. So. Yeah, that's really cool that you're able so to do that. So it's kind of like a workspace before a working yeah. space for a restaurant. Yep. Okay. Yeah. Awesome. Like a co-working space. Yeah. Yeah. A co a co-shared kitchen. Yeah. Mm-hmm. Okay. That's why I got my face like lit up when you said ghost kitchen, because I haven't heard and they said it's like an intersection of um real estate, restaurant, and I guess just like general business. So like, that's so cool that you're able to capitalize on that from an investment standpoint. Yeah, and it's another um, similar concept here with industrial space. Um, Like one of my clients um, who has a leather brand company, they're renting space, even though it's, 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 it's it's minority owned. And I think they just expanded to Dallas or something with their second location, but they kind of do the same thing where you can, as a small business, go in these co-working industrial for makers and, and things of that nature. And then this also um, some nonprofit entities in Atlanta kind of created a similar type building as well. So um, I guess co-working isn't totally dead, even though it seemed like it died on the office side. It's picking up in all these other, you know, entities in terms of, I mean, genres of real estate rather. Did it die on the office side? I guess maybe COVID? Nobody wants to go back in the office. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> office, office itself has has struggled. Yeah. During COVID, yeah, I'm a dual screens over here, not really trying to go back and deal with. You know, office space. This is the time to get it. Uh, you know, if you want to get office space for your uh, business, but like here in Atlanta, you can't keep second generation restaurant space. Like I don't know what it is, but everybody want to. You know, this is because restaurants are so expensive to build out. Um, so if you're a new restaurant owner or coming from a fruit food truck and want to have your brick and mortar finding a built-out restaurant that already has all these expensive duck work and you know fans and all this other stuff exhaust systems that they need this is the time to get them when these some of these restaurants are closing up and you know so that's impressive i'm 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 impressed Aisha. i don't know if you know that or not. <laughs> Um, so, you know, we were talking about COVID and just like how this past year has, has changed things on the commercial side, but like, what are your thoughts about the current real estate market conditions? Like we know on the residential side, it's a seller's market and it's on it's fire right now. Crazy. It's, yeah. yeah. It's like down 60% or something crazy. I guess for me, my perspective is a little different because I've, I lived through the first, the, the last, uh, mortgage crisis and bubble and down. I feel like what goes up must come down. Now, when, I mean, we might have another good two year run. The only thing I say for economies that are still growing like Dallas and Austin and Houston and in Atlanta where people are coming here in droves, it may not go down as fast, but some of these other markets, I think what goes up must come down. And, you know, we know real estate is cyclical. It's just when, when will that curve happen where it starts to go the other way? And so, um, what I've been talking to a lot of people who a lot of my clients are just friends in general is talking about being ready and being liquid enough for when that change comes. Now, you know, because right now, even though interest rates are low, there's nothing to buy. You're going to pay the flip side is you're going to over probably overpay for a house, you know, if you can find one at this point. So and, you know, that makes other investors 
are leaving markets like Atlanta and going outside of the Metro Atlanta market and going more rural or going to other smaller cities um, to make investments because it is, it's just so cost prohibitive here with the cost of land to build and we're, we're not going to even get into the construction and, and, and delays as far as with the uh, materials and all that because some of these builders are even struggling with that so I think it's going to I think it's cyclical and I think we may have another two years or so or so. Don't quote me on that, but I'm trying to make sure I'm liquid so I can pick up some stuff when it uh when it does happen, since we all know it'll go back up eventually. Yeah, no, I agree with that. I think it's I think you're right. And I think it depends on what market. Yeah. And all those markets that you name, spot on. I mean, those are those are where everybody's trying to move to. Everyone's leaving California mm-hmm. and they're pissed because they're driving up all the home sales. They have cash. Yeah, they're they cash sold their home here for millions. Yeah, coming out, <laughs> cashing out these $700,000, $400,000 homes. So now, you know, now you need to be over a million to probably even find something that you really would want. Whereas you could find a really nice house for three, four hundred here. Those the average price now is like three seventy six. So that's pretty expensive for. You know, because the wages in Georgia, let's keep it real, it's not like California where the wages are still relatively low here. Um, so it's definitely people coming from other places. So since they don't have a mortgage, I guess they can afford to take a lower paying job. Man, that's crazy. And it's interesting. It's kind of the same thing happening in Texas. And I, and my my viewpoint is that's going to drive the need for affordable housing. And, and like a lot of those people, I think, who are coming out not everybody is doing great financially. A lot of those people are taking a gamble coming out, you know, from other uh, states to try to find cheaper housing. Mm-hmm. And, you know, our, in Texas, our 350 is, is a lot better than maybe what they're facing in other areas. But that drives me to my next question, which is about affordable housing, which is near and dear to my heart. Yes. What gave you your passion for affordable housing? Because I remember when I couldn't pay my rent. <laughs> <laughs> keep it real. Yeah. Let's keep it real here. I, I I remember when it was like, woo, I wish I could find a little cheaper rent. You know, I've lived in California, so I know about paying expensive rent. And and, and even when I was in school and, you know, so I, I understand that plight. And so affordability is a big deal. And we know it's affected by the economics of an area. However, like you said, whatever all these market forces happening, it's, it's becoming even it's going to be exacerbated even more and becoming a bigger problem. So, I advocate in terms of policy. Um, I do affordable housing days and go, you know, call legislator legislatures and tell them like, hey, support whatever bill that'll allocate more funds or create land trust or anything like that to support affordable housing. I also, um, I sit on the, I'm the chairman of Quest Community Development Organization. Quest provides affordable housing and wraparound services on the west side of Atlanta. 20 year organization, the the brother that started it is from the D. Um, So that's our connection. And, you know, he's been here for over 20 years doing, making a huge impact it started as for veterans and now, you know, it's families, um, senior housing, have over 200 units of affordable housing, plus um, another 200 in the pipeline, as well as gotten into the mixed use side. 
So I do a lot of pro bono work for them. Even before I became an attorney, I handled the lease up for their mixed use um, development, part of the capital campaign, raising money and funds for that type of stuff. Uh, legal aid, you know, I've done landlord tenant work for tenants who are, and now I'm on the other side representing landlords now. <laughs> but, you know, I still volunteer where I can. And another thing uh, that affects affordability that a lot of us don't think about is heirs' property. Um, a lot of families, especially families of color, are losing their legacy properties due to heirs' property. And of course, you know, grandma, you know, grandma can't afford the taxes, getting taxed out when these neighborhoods change. But one of the bigger problems is when grandma leaves the house to everybody. And so oh, a lot of wealth has been, yeah, a lot of wealth has been lost in, in a lot of neighborhoods, inner city neighborhoods, because, you know, once you have 10 people who have ownership, okay, now you can't go apply for a, a repair grant because it got to be in one person's name. Um, you got to get everybody, all the owners have to agree. So we know yeah. that's possible <laughs> um, when you have a bunch of family members involved. So I think proper estate planning is another area as a community that we can focus a little bit on to kind of preserve what we have. Because a lot of properties get lost that way because then, you know, oh, I thought you paid the taxes. Oh, I thought you paid the taxes and now it's gone, you know, so or just period, it goes into disarray because only one family member is living in it who probably can't afford it. And all the other family members don't see the need of contributing when they're don't when they're not benefiting. So, and they end up losing the property ultimately. So, hey y'all, keep grandma's house and hold it in a different structure other than just in everyone's name. So, yeah, I was interrupting to say the other thing is reverse mortgage. They always hit up the our old, you know, people are you know grandma with with the reverse mortgage option, and it sounds so attractive. And I know I had a great aunt that did it, and as much as I talked her out of it. It just sounds so attractive. Oh, they're going to pay me for my, no, nobody's going to pay you for your house. You know what I mean? That's not how this is going down, but I think it's just the education piece. And you're absolutely right. Yeah. And police can't afford to redeem those mortgages because, you know, it's a way to get the house back, but you got a really short window. Mm -hmm. I'm working on that right now for my, my dad, actually, my great aunt died and she didn't have any, she didn't have any children. So my dad got the house and I keep trying to get him to stay on top of it because he's like, oh no, they're still paying for it. And I'm like, you know, it, it actually did get prolonged because of COVID, but yeah. it's coming back. Yeah. So, you know, and luckily hers wasn't high. She didn't actually take out the max. I know a lot of people do, but mm -hmm. there was a grace in the fact that she realized she didn't need the max. So, but I try to stay on them because I was like, technically you don't own this house yet because you haven't actually gotten it taken out of the reverse mortgage into your name. So it's a thin line walking that though. It's really tough with those rever reverse mortgages. I know Ebony and I tried to save a foreclosure with a reverse mortgage, but it was one of those that was an heir with multiple owners. You know, it was like four, three brothers and a sister or something like that. And yeah. it was just a mess. They lost the house. Yeah. But we could have saved it. Like they had enough equity in the house where they could have gotten out of it and they could have actually gotten out of the reverse mortgage. It was actually not a bad deal. But they had one brother that was not for it. He was like basically thinking, no, oh, he could do better. He going to sue them and get the money and get the house and all of that. And we were like, okay. Um, pulled in somebody's cousin who was a real estate agent. Like, nah. Yeah, that ain't and it. then <laughs> they lost the house. Exactly. So, so a lot of, because a lot of calls I get um, like that, people call me like thinking it's a real estate problem and really it's a state planning problem. So, you know, the importance of wills, you know, I've done will clinics and offer wills, 
simple estate planning specials where it's only like $500 and you get your POA, uh, um, financial director, advanced care directive, I'm sorry, um, and a simple will. Because, I mean, you know, of course, it's a little bit more if you want to get into trust and all that. But really, a lot of people who call me and say they want to trust don't. Why do you want to trust? Because they just heard somebody else say it when really it's just because they don't want the people to know that the house is theirs, you know, or it's like, it's other entities you can own it in that are way simpler with less restrictions. So, you know, you coach us up really quickly. Right. Benefits of a trust. Cause right now I'm dealing with a probate situation and I can't, I have to wait and I have to do a court order. I'm waiting until the day comes and do a court ordered special car that I've never even used before residential purchase agreement and it has to be on this probate form and i've got to go and research all this because i've never done it but can you just break down like how could we avoid all this like what is what's the, what's the benefit of the trust like what is what is the purpose there there are some benefits of trust i mean as far as if you're trying to do tax protection but really when a lot of people say they want to put property in a trust is usually because they're trying to the one the more recently I've gotten a lot of people who just want to put it in a trust because they want to kind of separate it but it depends on the type of trust and then you know also it's state specific you know each state had each jurisdiction has different rules regarding their trust so I have to put this disclaimer out there that uh this is not legal advice <laughs> but you know it, it really depends on where you are and the rules that apply to it and what kind of benefits. So that's why I tell people sometimes it's not worth getting a trust because if you get, I had one person that wanted, um, what was the name of the trust? I'm sorry, I'm drawing a blank, but basically they wanted a trust where a blind trust. And I don't even think they under, cause they were from California buying something in Georgia and um, they're like, oh, well we get blind trust all the time. But here a blind trust is once it's in a trust, the, the, the beneficiaries have no say. So is that something you really want your personal residence? And because really the trustee has to do, do has has the right to make all the rules, whereas you can't point, appoint yourself as a trustee either in a blind trust, where if you get a revocable trust, you can still make moves and sell it and everything else. But a lot of times people get irrevocable trust or blind trust where there are a lot of restrictions. And it's like you said, it's not worth the hassle versus a revocable trust where you can choose who the beneficiaries are, change the trustee, make yourself the trustee. And it's really more of a tax. It's more for tax purposes, more so than liability protection, which a lot of people try to use them for too. So no, that makes sense. Yeah. Every, everyone I'll be asking my mom what kind of trust they got. <laughs> Probably. Yeah, because everyone uses a trust here. Like yeah, everyone in California. Big. So, and that's why the person who reached out to me was doing it on behalf of a client. And I had, yeah. it's probably different from what you all are doing in California, just jurisdiction wise, you know? Yeah. Um, so, and you know, I wasn't abreast of the the true differences, but based on language alone, what she was calling a blind trust, I'm like, I don't think they want that. Cause Not that, yeah. If they want to sell their house later, they can't make that decision. Only the trustee can, you know? <laughs> so yeah. they're getting they have a trust here from my grandparents or my grandmother's deceased, but my grandpa's still alive and he put the properties in a trust. Right. And I'm you now you got me thinking what kind of trust is this? <laughs> I don't I'm not well versed on any of that. So yeah, but it is here. Revocable trust to where he can control who the trustee is and leave instructions on, you know, so to avoid probate too. It's just another way to avoid probate. Whereas a will still, even if you have a will, you still have to go through the probate process where a trust can kind of do everything without going through the courts too. That's another it's, it's another entity that can be used for that. But 
mainly it's for the tax purposes and sometimes people use it for the, the protection as far as they don't want they're known or famous they use those to kind of cover up their identity and all that but um, yeah that's that's what you see here yeah yeah i get it a lot yeah because it was a celebrity that Sucks. celebrity's business manager that called me about the house they were buying in georgia you know so um i don't even know who the celebrity was but it was just i knew it was a celebrity because it was their business manager you know <laughs> so, yeah they're passing out this house and they yeah this is awesome so you you're you're a wealth of knowledge you you're doing a real estate you you've basically taught us over the course of this interview how you're intertwining them like throughout the questions and i mean you know you, you you're doing all these investments and things like that what keeps you motivated like what's like accomplishing all of this what what's the why <laughs> the why is my kids of course and just for me, this has been a long journey um, into commercial real estate specifically. Like I've, I've blogged about getting to the 1% as I call it, um, you know, cause it's definitely been challenges and, you know, being in a male, white male dominated to where you feel invisible in some of these rooms. And, you know, the why for me is proven to myself that I can do it, of course, with by the grace of God and, you know, with God's favor, but it's kind of like, you know, okay, I can do this. We just have to have way more qualifications. You know, that's why I have all these CCIMs and all this other stuff just to differentiate myself. And so your knowledge isn't questioned because it's automatically questioned all the time. But what motivates me overall is just trying to be an example to my sons and get myself in a position to where not even more so about money, but just the freedom, you know, I struggle with that every time I go, like, I'm about to go give me a job. But then it's like, mm, nah, <laughs> then I won't be able to just make my schedule and do as I please and go pick up my kid early if I want to, or don't work today. You know, if the whole goal of trying to create generational wealth or, or just your own legacy is more so for me being more so just being an example and giving me the freedom to do ultimately do things for my family and my children. So um, so that's what motivates me even when the days I'm like, I'm over this. I don't like it. I'm tired. I don't, I'm tired of talking about real estate. You know, everybody has those moments where it's like, I don't want to hear anything else about real estate. I'm about to go sell some makeup and socks or something, you know, <laughs> <laughs> um, <Not socks. laughs> comes back, you get that call and then it's like, oh, okay. I yeah, you know, you get excited about a deal again. So, and so Definitely that's a bunch of adrenaline. Just yeah, to, you get excited yeah. about a deal. So that's why I'm moving my legal practice from less litigation stuff to more transactional because that's where I think I found my joy a little bit more. All that just trying to win, just to win, and is yeah. all contention. And, you know, I, I prefer when people come to me to help them get what they want. And everybody, you know, for the most part, you're. All parties are usually pretty much not, if they're not happy, they're okay. You know, nobody feels cheated because the buyer gets what they want, seller gets what they want. The other folks involved usually get a check at the end of the day. And that's the things of, you know, of course, and helping people is another thing that motivates me because I help still do some first time home buyer stuff every now and then and just helping people um, secure face, whether it be for their business, new business or established businesses. That's another thing that you know, reminds you why you're doing it or reminds me what, rather why I'm doing this. And when I can see a client I help when they were just talking about it, it was a concept and now they're like killing it, you know, and it's like, oh, 
small part of me, you know. <laughs> watch <laughs> just to watch you flourish. Yeah, you know, super, and, you know, and I learn a lot from my clients who are, you know, in various industries and their work ethic and just seeing the, their businesses grow. It seemed like overnight, but you know, it makes me proud that I just played a small role in that too. So it sounds more intentional. Yeah. Like your moves. <clears throat> yeah. How you said, instead of chasing the money, you're chasing your intentions. Yeah. Cause I mean, you know, I've gotten approached with a few opportunities over the last year where, you know, to partner with some folks and, or either just some opportunities where, to where I'm like, mm, it's, it's about culture for me. And then to exposure, what can I learn? And what can I share as well? And, you know, if I had to pass up a few things that on the surface may seem like, oh, that would have been a great fit, but the culture probably wouldn't have worked for me because I still want to be able to uh, be a socially active activist and also, you know, a capitalistic activist for other people as well. So, you know, it's definitely a social side to me. As much as I want to be a capitalist, I can't help it. <laughs> so, you know, so that 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 just brings that just keeps me going even when I don't feel like it. So, well, you know, social capitalism is the new wave. So, mm-hmm. love to hear that. That's that's your passion. So, yes, and it's needed. Okay, now it's time for Courtney's favorite part. Okay, which is rapid fire. It sounds more intimidating than it okay, actually uh-huh. is. <laughs> like, dun, quick. Dun, dun. <laughs> quick, quick, quick. It's quick. So, rapid fire is just going to be a series of questions we're going to ask. And you got to, you got to say the first thing that comes to your mind. Okay. All right. That you, that you want to share. Okay. Right. Okay. So I'm going to go first. And this really isn't necessarily a rapid fire question. This is, this is more so of a settlement because you are from Detroit and you live in Atlanta, mm-hmm. uh, you might be able to help me settle this. Do you okay. say pecan or pecan? I say pecan. Pecan. Okay, thank you. Pecan. All right. It's Perfect. pecan. It's pecan. <laughs> A lot of people from Georgia say pecan. Pecan. Um, I'm not from here, so maybe you're not from here. Okay. <laughs> maybe we're pronouncing it wrong, but I say pecan. It's pecan. I get that added to my. Hmm. I say with pecans on top. <laughs> people say butter pecan. pecan. I'm like, it's pecan. For pecan. Pecan. <laughs> yeah. Okay. Thank you for that. I appreciate it. <laughs> Who likes butter pecan pecan or pecan ice cream? Because it's like only my mom and aunties eat that. Not my husband every day. Right. Like it's some bell. some bluebell blue butter pecan. You all, like, it's not a bad flavor. It's not something I would go to first. <laughs> Oh, That's his only flavor that he really Jasper know what's up. Puns <laughs> are a high dollar nut. <laughs> <laughs> okay. Uh what was I gonna say? Oh, it's summertime. It's summer, summer, summertime. We we about to get lit up in this. What's your favorite summer activity? Concerts, outdoor concerts. I miss them so <laughs> When I lived oh. in Detroit, going on the water, you know, like everybody had a lot of people had boats and stuff. So just like going on the water, listening to music, you know, but really outdoor concerts. I miss that. All right. So we have a 2B then because I still have another question. But the 2B to Courtney's is what when you're closing a big deal, what are you listening to? I am a neo soul girl. You know, I don't break out the Rick Ross or every day I'm hustling and nothing like that. If you really right, my sister teases me like every time I get in your car, I'm da 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 da. You know. So is it Jilly from Philly? 
<laughs> right. It's Amila Rue. It's, you know, uh, what's the girl? Sona Allegra. That oh, yo. That's you my know, girl. My, my thing, Eric Roberson. Uh, you know, Party Shane. <laughs> Okay. You know, that's that's my kind of music. So I listen Who to Who is that. it Courtney doesn't like? Lucky Day. She's not Lucky a celebrity. I don't like that man. <laughs> <laughs> you know, some E by do, uh, you know. All right. Old school neo soul. And I'm I'm trying to learn who some of these new folks are. I can get with the old school neo soul. What's the girl that does uh Ari look Ari Linux? Ari Linux. Ari Linux. Ari. Ebony. I don't know. And, uh, you know, getting into Summer Walker a little, and, you know. She's not really Neo Soul, though. Not really. Some of her no. stuff has a little vibe. But. Yeah, but I, I definitely, you you named a lot of the ones I listen to, too. Yeah, but I'm, my spectrum is... Rasan Patterson, you know, those yeah. my folks. <laughs> so right now is, the, is she's, she's doing it. Okay, so my real question. <laughs> okay, you're about, well, you're not about to be an empty nester because how old is your other son? Don't laugh at me, y'all. He'll be six. <laughs> Shout out to the six-year-old. She say, don't laugh Ooh, at me. You started all out. over. Started all the way over. I got a six-year-old. Shout out to them um, kindergartners on their way to first grade. First grade yeah. Well, Thank mine's you. on the way to kindergarten. <laughs> okay. But, okay. Well, y'all, but I, I put 12 years in between my babies, so. We have a friend that did that. She has a son that will be graduating soon, and she had a little girl. <laughs> I did not, like a three-year-old. I did not recommend one star. <laughs> Don't do that. <laughs> <laughs> Zero star. <laughs> okay. Well, I, my next question would be, where are you traveling to next? I am going with my oldest son to Cabo, actually, next week. Taking San Lucas, um, part of his graduation birthday festivities. So that's okay. what next. So, um, and after that, I'm, I'm going to sneak go off. Somewhere alone. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> going somewhere alone. Like, I've been, I've gotten into this traveling alone stuff, and it's pretty cool. So, um, I think I'm going to try that again now that we're opening back. You know, the world is opening back up, so. Awesome. It, this is the first uh, guest that we've had. We're able to say, like, now that the world is open back up, where are you traveling? Like, so we've done most of the show in COVID, and the travel has always been like a future plan. Yeah, so. it's always like, oh, when the world opens back up, where are you right. traveling to? Right, but right. now that the, I couldn't even ask that because the world is open. So that's why I was like, where are you going next? I plan on um, being but, and out of here, you know? Hey! <laughs> As they say. Wow. Well, where's your next solo travel? That's what I'm trying to consider now. Um, I went to the Bahamas by myself, which was awesome. I got a friend that's moving to, um, I always say it wrong, not Accra, Accra. So Accra. she's going there. And so I think once she, because she's engaged to someone over there. So I think I'm going to go visit her by myself over there. So that's the next. Got her little prince. Yeah, and get the groove back. All right. I like it. Well, this has been awesome. This has been a, a wonderful show. This has been, I knew it was going to be super entertaining and also just delightfully educational as well uh, as we strive to do. So I really appreciate you coming on. I speak for the ladies when I say thank you so much and please come back to join us well thank you for having me I'm appreciative of the opportunity and I think your podcast is great 
And uh, you know, my party work, show up as you. That's all I got for y'all. That's motivation for us to keep going. Yeah. Absolutely. Yes. Thank you all. Thank you. Thank you. Bye bye. <laughs>